listening to Skylight, the Skylight Books podcast. Skylight Books is a general interest bookstore in the Los Feliz neighborhood in Los Angeles. You can shop with us from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. or visit us online 24-7 at skylightbooks.com. Follow along at Skylight Books Instagram and Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening, and now on to the episode. Hello to all of our listeners and welcome to Skylit, the Skylight Books podcast. I'm your host, Elena Saunders. Today, we're so thrilled to welcome Farah Ali to talk about her new story collection, People Want to Live. And after that, she'll be in conversation with Hassan Butt. Before I introduce them, I want to remind you that Skylight Books is open for in-store browsing, and you can always shop online at skylightbooks.com. Farah Ali is from Pakistan. Her work has been anthologized in the 2020 Pushcart Prize, as well as received special mention in the 2018 Pushcart Anthology. Her stories have appeared in Shenandoah, the Arkansas International, the Southern Review, Kenyan Review Online, Copper Nickel, the Colorado Review, and elsewhere. People Want to Live is her first story collection coming October 26 via McSweeney's. Asan Butt was born in Toronto, is of Pakistani descent, and lives in LA. His short fiction and essays have appeared or are forthcoming in West Branch, Barrel House, The Massachusetts Review, The Normal School, Smoke Long Quarterly, The Rumpus, Pacifica Literary Review, The Offing, and elsewhere. He is currently a senior editor at South Asian Avant-Garde, a dissident literary anthology. Thank you both so much for being here. Farah, did you want to read a little something for us before we get started? Um, sure, yeah. So I'll do a five minute read of a story called Present Tense. Okay, shall I start? Yeah, mm -hmm. great. Okay. Present Tense. What I remember most from when I was a child is a time when my father did not come home one day and not the next day or the day after. I was 12 and my brother was 15. The first few days of his absence, I woke up in a state of anxiety, my body filling up with the unpleasantness of this great uncertainty my brother, my mother and I were thrust into. I felt better among the wooden lidded desks in my classroom and the faces of my teachers. And by afternoon recess, I was at the peak of my day's happiness. In the evening as six o'clock came nearer, the time my father usually came home, I was paralyzed with worry and sat in the corner of the living room, only able to move again when the hour hand came to rest on the seven. After a strange meal with my shrunken family, I would sink into sleep, grateful that my father was still gone and uncomfortable with myself for feeling this way. I wanted to be assured of his staying away longer, but didn't know how to talk to my mother about it. Besides, my brother was already doing the asking. She gave him a different answer each time. He's visiting relatives or he needs to be at work or he comes home late and goes to work before you wake up. 
One evening, she was humming and sorting out a pile of old books, and I guess that made my brother wonder if she'd killed her father. His face turned red, and he shouted at her and called her selfish. She paused in her task and sat, sharp as a chip of ice. Your father is perfectly fine. She always called him your father when she was angry and wanted to hold us, his sons, responsible for his presence, as if our births had made him a necessary evil in her life. And when she said those two words now, I felt twisted with sadness because I'd thought that with him gone, she would like her sons better. My brother stomped away, but I stood a while longer, watching her face anxiously. I felt lighter only when she started to hum again. My father has come to the airport to pick me up. I feel jittery and uncertain, reduced from my adult height up to a child's dimensions. But I keep control of my suitcase and make sure he sees me tipping a porter, even though we haven't taken his help. And by the time we walk to the car, I'm a grown-up again. I have not been in Karachi for seven years. I have not sat next to my father for just as long. He's old now, and his fingers curved over the steering wheel are thin. He peers through the windshield and drives in bursts of speed, dodging motorcycles and rickshaws. His window is rolled down, and he instructs me to do the same. Yeah. Hi, Farah. So, Hi. Um, such a beautiful reading. Um, just immediately taken into the, the mood and the claustrophobia of so many of the stories. Um, in this collection, we encounter people who desperately, as the title suggests, want to live. Um, but I feel that the stories enumerate and make real all the things that make it hard for them to do so. The, but where I want to start is that most of the stories uh, in this collection take place or are rooted in Karachi. But there's a, there's a specific way that you go about setting. There's no landmarks or exposition around setting. It's a much more lived in Karachi. In fact, I would argue that we're dealing with uh, plural Karachis in that each version of the city is refracted through a, uh, the character's subjectivity and, of course, things like class and gender. Do you think of this collection as a Karachi collection? Um, no. It, I kept names of places out of it on purpose. Somehow to... It helped me make it more character-centric and less about the place itself. So even though they're living in it and living lives that are affected by things around them, um, political or weather or, um, you know, but it's really only about the character itself. So I think I tend to keep places of names, uh, names of places out of my writing in general. It also helps make it less sentimental that way. Yeah, I know you hate sentimentality in all forms, yeah. but but the city itself exerts this pressure on almost all the characters. It's it's in the yep. air, and it and it kind of forces them down certain paths. So you have this balance. Um, do you, do you think about that when writing how how the how the place affects uh, and creates situations for those characters? Yeah. Um, see, so I like to think about my people like. They're living all these lives and their situations are like pre-existing conditions, whatever it is, lack of finance, financial stability or lack of relationship stability or whatever. Um, and the city's conditions exacerbate it somehow, you know, like an undercurrent all the time. 
And so something's got to give. So there comes a moment in the life of the character when they start breaking apart um, in a big way or a small way. So the city's pressures are always there, whatever's happening around them. Yeah, and what, what strikes me about this collection the most is your ability to capture the way people's minds work. Uh, you, we, we get quite close to the inner mechanics or the inner logic of uh, how, how the mind works, but also how it moves and the turns it takes. And it feels so intimate. Um, and we, we watch them struggling to accept love or overcome grief or, or just poverty. Um, and, and there's a variety of classes represented in this book too. It's, it's, you know, many of the characters are dealing with poverty, but many of them are also dealing with the anxieties of, um, class appearance. Um, but it's, it's utterly heartbreaking to be inside these characters' minds. Um, is, is character your way in then to all these stories? Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about that. And I remembered that when I was small, I wanted to be a psychiatrist or a psychologist um, or, you know, digging around history. So since I didn't do that, this is my way of getting into a character. I always start a story with a person in mind, not with the plot, not even with an ending. It's always about the person itself. So when I start writing, it kind of becomes like I become the person as much as I can you know, like their hands are my hands and their feet are my feet. Their actions are my actions. Um, so I try to be as true to them as possible. And as I write the story out, I do discover what they're capable of doing sometimes. Um, so I do let the character lead the way. And it generally comes from this burning question of a character's need to prove their reason for going on being you know, despite whatever, despite people not believing in them or circumstances not allowing them to be, but they're kind of stubborn, you know, they don't have a sense of their ending. So they go on being. Is there a character who you most um, love or hold dear or their journey was just the most heartbreaking for you? Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know, I don't think so. I think they're all twisty in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're, they're yeah, definitely all aspects. Twisty. Yeah, there are aspects of each of them that I like, I relate to. I mean, I wrote them. <laughs> <laughs> but some character in particular, I mean, I I don't like him more than most, but I find the consulate guy interesting, the one in Foreigners, because of how the story was created and I went about it from an opposite angle. So, yeah. Yeah, that story was the first of yours that I ever read and it it blew me away. Um, for, for those who don't know it, um, it's, it's a story in which we have a Pakistani couple applying for a visa to visit their family in uh, to visit their daughter in the States. But the entire story is from the perspective of uh, the, the consulate um, official. And at first there's that power struggle, right? That, that power that he holds over them. 
but it's almost like he's omniscient in his perception of the couple and they he he shows this remarkable vulnerability and it goes it goes way further it's something that i wanted to ask you actually about is that you know that initial bit of just that that encounter that situation would have been enough for most writers to mine but you go somewhere way more vulnerable and strange and haunting with it um how how did you how did you write that story or what what was the spark the spark was very real <laughs> it also i wrote it in the middle of another story and the setting is not what i'd experienced but I, you know, uh, I have to apply for my visa for most places and have to go for this big fat bundle of papers, documents to prove all sorts of stuff. So when I'd gone to the consulate here to go get my U.S. visa, he'd asked me. Sorry, where is here? Uh, Dubai. Right. Uh, it was just a bunch of years ago. So I'd gone to get my visa and he asked me and I, I'd lived in the U.S. and then I'd come back to Dubai and he's looking at my papers and they know all sorts of stuff. I don't know why they want my papers, <laughs> but so he said, I see you had a kid there. And if you go there again, I'll know. And I found that hilarious, but I couldn't say anything because, you know, I needed the visa. So, <laughs> so I let it go. Uh, but I think it was like a slow fuse moment, you know, it took me a lot of weeks to get really mad about what he'd said. So it came out in the story. But as I was writing it, um, I just started thinking about, you know, what would a consulate person's life be like? Not living here, but living back home, which is Pakistan for me. Um, it's a difficult life for them, I'm sure, in many ways. So just kind of put myself in the shoes of an imaginary consulate person who's having, you know, not the easiest of times, maybe almost becoming sympathetic to him. Yeah, it's my, I could write an essay about my emotional journey reading that story. Maybe I will one day. It was, it's just, <laughs> I, I'm, I'd like you, to read it. <laughs> I'm, I'm usually a really detached reader. I read closely, but the character's emotional journey is often very separate from my experience of reading a book. I'm more of an observer. Um, but reading this collection, the drama of my experience was this weighing of good versus bad outcomes. Um, to put it another way, I just desperately wanted good endings, happy endings for these people. And though there's less of those and the ones that do exist are really conditional and very complex and nuanced. The overall collection does seem to have a balance because of how that the hope is so hard earned that the good outcomes weigh more. And mm -hmm. because there's this emotional rigor, nothing is given cheaply. Um, it makes each ending feel very earned. So I wanted to ask, did you think about balancing the book in this way? And more broadly, how do you think about story endings? Um, no, I didn't think about the book as a total. Uh, I just approached each story as it was. If we're talking about balancing the book, um, I didn't know there would be a book when I was writing all the stories. But to the question of do I think about the ending, usually, I would say 90% of the times, no. It, even if I have a vague idea, it tends to change as I write the stuff. 
again, because of the character and in the person, what he or she's doing on paper. Um, good outcomes and bad outcomes, I don't consciously make them, you know, live a life of despair. <laughs> it comes from an innate belief of uh, things are usually hard. So, <laughs> or even if something good's happening, you know, bad news is just like a corner away. So, yeah. Um, to the effect that when I saw Donnie Darko years ago, and then I saw it again uh, a while back, um, I remembered that one of my favorite place scenes is uh, when he's talking to his teacher, Kitty Farmer, I think, in, a, in detention. She's explaining to them something about how most people operate out of fear or love. And he's arguing with her that there's a whole spectrum in between, but I think I would side with the teacher that most of the things we do do operate out of love and fear or a combo of both. So I think when you do something desperately out of love or fear, I don't think you can guarantee good outcomes. And what it seems to complicate things is that, uh, you know, so many of the characters are looking for love, but they seem unable to accept it or believe themselves worthy of it. Um, and it's just, it's, it's as if their consciousnesses are, are laden with these trap doors and th their consciousnesses almost seem like haunted houses. Um, so it, it, although you, you know, you're, you're suggesting that there's, you know, people do things out of love or fear, um, the complexity comes in with all these like mental mechanisms, um, that you seem to be able to just bring to life, uh, in a way that I, I, the reader can't help but be immersed in and invested in emotionally. Yeah, I think the I mean, you said that they don't believe they're worthy of it. I think the op that these people in my stories, they operate kind of in a two opposite way simultaneously. Um, you know, almost like dialectic behavior or something. They probably don't believe they deserve the good stuff, but they are, they stubbornly keep believing in a future that in which they have those things love or money or, you know, the good stuff in life, basic good stuff. So they do persist in forging through relationships. Um, you know, they don't give up on them. Yeah, I think that that's the great, I, I feel as if this story collection, as you're put through the ringer, it's a, it's an ode to resiliency. I really do believe that. Um, and in our conversations prior, uh, I think you had you had asked or suggested is this a despairing book, and I I don't think so because the the beauty is in how much these people struggle and and keep going in some cases. Um, but I want to I want to talk about class anxiety um, because it compels so many of your characters. I'll, I'll just give a short rundown here. In Bulletproof Bus, we have a man <laughs> crushingly trying to get a job busing tourists through his own neighborhood, which is considered dangerous um, in the effect of heat on poor people, which won a push cart prize in 2020. Uh, a woman is wife to a sulky, let's call him, journalist, covering a record-breaking heat wave and its impact on the poor while they themselves don't have electricity. 
uh, in an act of charity, a man working at a detergent company, which I love, has a mental break and spends a night in a tunnel and then convinces his wife to make a grotesque act of charity to a maid at a party they attend. Um, in What's Fair, fair uh, we have these petty thieves who plan a heist. And in all these stories, uh, class is so paramount. Um, yet these people are really complicated and messy and nowhere is anyone one dimensionally a victim. Um, is this just an outcome of your character driven process that you get that complexity regardless of um, any factor that might seem so determinant? I think so. Um, I think it comes from, at least in these stories, when I start, when I wrote any of them, uh, when I put them in a place of money or lack of, um, or anything else, which is a privilege, uh, it was almost like a, like I said earlier, a pre-existing condition. So they were aware of it, or they were aware of the lack of it or of having it. But they weren't consciously thinking about it all the time. Um, but in the story, that lack created instability. And so they were reacting to the results of what they didn't have, you know? So like you mentioned in Bulletproof Bus, the, the protagonist, he clearly doesn't have financial stability, you know, but he seems like a good person. Um, so he's striving for something, not money per se, but for the idea for family life of some sort. So that's his result of, the, his actions are a result of fighting the symptoms of having no money. Um, but then there's another story, right? Loved ones where they do have a lot of money, which they're aware of kind of in the background. It alleviates a lot of stuff for them. Even as a protagonist struggles with something else she's lacking. So there is money, there is no money, there is love, there is no love. Uh, I, I drew on this idea kind of when I heard an interview by uh, Hanya Yanakihara who had said this thing about how having these things is a privilege. And I had never thought of having family life or love as, I mean, money always everyone thinks of, but the other two things that never equated them to privilege somehow, but it was so clear when she said it. And then when I saw that in, in these characters and I figured that, yeah, they are operating out of, you know, finding stability despite not having the love or despite not having the money. So we're, money is always like pulsing in the background, the lack of, or, or you know, or having it. And if they have some other problems and what's money, what money's doing is it's sorting out things for the people around them. Um, they don't have to worry about food, for example, the people who have it, but those who have mental health problems, they, they're not affected by having or not having money. It's the people around them in my stories. I'd love to talk about another story, uh, foreign, uh, foreigners. No, sorry. Mm -hmm. um, is it tourism? Yeah, with the mountains. Yeah, that's right. Sorry. 
I have the wrong title in my notes, tourism. Um, we get this uh, ghostly deconstruction of the cliches of a tourist visit to a mountainous uh, rural area. Um, but it's also a deconstruction of the life that this man is living. Uh, do you mind reading a bit from it just so the audience can hear the voice? Sure. So I wrote the story in second person. I think this was my second second person story. Tourism, a hidden gem. Welcome to Gilgit Baltistan, formerly known as the Northern Areas of Pakistan. The gorgeous scenery promises to stun all visitors. Please note that it does not promise to restore you just as the sea by our city in the South never did. Restoration is solely your own responsibility and the mountains, rivers, and fresh air cannot be held accountable if you fail to heal. Before going farther north, you must make a stopover in the city of Gilgit. We recommend that you spend no more than one day and one night there. Other travelers say that a small waterfall nearby is a must see. And it is true that it is lovely, but you are tired. You must give yourself some time to get used to the altitude, to acclimatize to your escape, to ease into your freedom, take a Xanax and go to sleep. It's easy to hire a car and a driver to visit the Hunza Valley. Rates can be negotiated, four to 6,000 rupees. On the way up, you can spend some of your vacation budget on a local rug, local hat, a local vase or a local ashtray, unless you quit cigarettes because your children started to look small and sad through the curling smoke. You can buy several packets of local dried apricots so your children can transform from the pale thin ghosts of a broken home to the rosy-cheeked children of this region. It's poor penance for the choices you've made, but it's a start. The mother would be pleased by the inoffensive, neutral nature of the gift. You don't need to buy her anything. You've no relation with her now, other than the fact that she's lived with your children in another house for two years. You might not know this, but that day you locked yourself in your car and turned off the air conditioning so you could sweat yourself to death, and she, dry-eyed and non-whimsical, broke the back window with a rock so you could breathe, was the day she decided she did not want to know you anymore. Light fair. Um, <laughs> I just, I love, I love how the voice, it, it turns into something else the longer the story goes. And I won't say anything more than that. But um, again, I think a lesser writer would have been satisfied to just deconstruct the tourist cliches and that sort of consumptive relationship that um, we, those with money, those with class privilege have to the, these uh, areas that have uh, become these tourist hotspots. But you, again, you went further and through the voice, we haunt this man whose life is just falling apart. Um, I think it's a masterful entanglement of the political and the personal. Uh, can you can you say something more about this story? Right. So, first thing I'll say about it is that what I said about never mentioning names, <laughs> this story is the absolute opposite of that. It's it is all the facts here are geographically very very accurate. I mean, down to the you know how how tall the mountains are, but. I don't think I'll do that again, but I did it because I visited those places and I thought, wow, that the, these valleys, they do look surreal, you know. Um, I think mountains always do look surreal to me. 
almost like they're haunted. And so there was that one fact. And the other fact that drove the story was it was this lake that's been created there many years ago by a landslide, the result of a landslide. So it blocked off a lot of villages. It created a rising water level. And the weirdness is that now it's a tourist spot. All right, what you're gonna do? And you can like take a ride across the lake there now. Uh, so when I visited that place, this idea of a story came to my head about the lake itself created under such ghastly circumstances, which is now a picnicking spot. Um, but maybe it was almost too easy to do that. And as usual, I diverted, my brain went toward a person whose own mind matched the hauntedness of that area, you know? So a character who's completely shattered uh, and he goes traveling there to get away from it all, sort of, with some vague idea of healing. And, you know, he's there and the whole scenery affects him, the water, the mountains, the rivers, the people, everything. And so also, it, I remember it was a third person narrative years ago. And then I said, maybe he feels like the brochure is talking to him throughout, you know, I mean, look at it whichever way you want, but <laughs> I liked the second person thing. I thought it worked well with the state of his mind. Yeah, it's it's one of my favorite stories in the collection. Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, no, it's beautiful. Uh, who are your, I, I know you're really into poetry, you read a lot. Um, who are your literary influences? Uh, <laughs> a lot of dead people. Um, that's what I grew up reading. So I will not shy from saying that the very first people I read over and over and over again were Thomas Hardy, Charles Dickens, Jane Austen, um, D.H. Lawrence, you know, but that was the first, those, those were the books I had access to. Um, and then over time, uh, John Cheever, Grace Paley, I love, love their works. Um, also, I would definitely say Sylvia Plath. She was the first English poet, not from school, no Robert Frost, you know, uh, no the Albatross poem or whatever. She was the first poet I picked up on my own and read the works of and it blew my mind. So, yeah. And I know um, music is, is a big deal as well, um, you're often listening to music as you write and you're turning over lyrics in your head. Who do you listen to um, when you're in the process of writing? Deeply unhappy people. <laughs> uh, usually Radiohead, uh, because I've listened to them forever, so I don't have to pay attention to the lyrics. Or Joy Division, um, Pink Floyd. Yeah, so their voices are in my head as I'm writing and they kind of merge with the, they're jiving with the character, you know, they're not at odds with the person on paper. They're all the same thing, so. Yeah, I think it makes for uh, an incredible mix. Um, I, I just think this collection is outstanding. It's one of the most deeply affecting experiences I've had with a book in a while. 
And uh, I'm so proud of Pakistani wrote it. So thank you for that's very kind of you. <laughs> All right, thank you both so much. That was such a wonderful conversation. Um, Farah, thank you so much for reading for us. Um, and I want to remind all of our listeners that you can order your own copy of People Want to Live at skylightbooks.com. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.